Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Live Wire Radio. I'm backstage right now at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. We have a really cool show coming up. We have got Jackie Cation stopping by. She's a super funny comedian. We've also got Ruth Reichel on the show. She is a food writer extraordinaire. I have been a fan of hers forever. And I just got to meet her. I was a little nervous. I got to tell you, she was nicer than I was expecting. And I was expecting her to be really nice, so that tells you something. Then we have music from Mr. Van Dyke Parks. You may or may not be familiar with Van Dyke's name. You've probably heard his work. He's a legend within American pop music. He collaborated with Brian Wilson on the Smile record, which I'm going to ask him about, which I don't even know if we're supposed to ask him about, but I'm just going to go for it. So wish me luck. This whole thing starts right now. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, with food writer Ruth Reichel, comedian Jackie Cation, music from the legendary Van Dyke Parks, and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, he's going back to basics, and that means one thing, it's ponytail time, Luke Burbank! Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Portland. We have a really fun show in store for you. Our theme this hour is Back to Basics. And uh, we've got a bunch of amazing guests. I mean, we have... I don't even know how we're going to get to everybody amazing that we have scheduled to come out for this show. Uh, One of our amazing guests is Ruth Reichel, who is a food legend. And... um, Ruth had to go back to basics recently because she was going through some personal stuff and she's got a new book out that talks about it, so we're going to check in with her on that. Ruth, as you may know, started out working in restaurants and then eventually made her way to being one of the most influential voices in American food. Um, I also started out working in restaurants (laughs) and worked my way up to this if that indicates what my natural talent was in the culinary department. Uh, The first job that I had was, um, I guess, technically at a restaurant. It was a burger joint in Seattle, like a local chain um, of of burger places, which I'm not exactly sure if I should say the name or not on the radio. Do we have any lawyers here in Rev Hall? Are there any lawyers? What is the statute of limitations on petty larceny (laughs) in Washington State? Two years? Okay, it's called Dick's Drive-In. Um, and it was my first job after my uh, sophomore year of high school. And I was so excited to get this job because it was a really cool place. It's kind of 1950s style, lots of uh, stainless steel and glass, and you get to wear a paper hat back there. What nobody told me was that the number one thing you need to be good at to work at Dick's Drive-In was complicated math inside your own head. This is because it was so old school that the cash registers didn't do the math for you. You had to figure out the prices all on your own. So what they would do when you got hired was you would spend the first two or three days just sitting in this tiny office with the manager of the restaurant drilling all of the different price combinations. I was in that office for one entire month. 
and I never got one of the prices right. <laughs> and I think that my manager just got so tired of me being in there that she gave me basically a fast food social promotion. She just said, you have not met the academic standards of Dick's Drive-In, but just go out on the floor and try to work it out for yourself. And I did, and it was pretty stressful because I could never get the prices down. And I would be, it would be like a Saturday, and there'd be a soccer coach there with a whole team, and he would just be rattling off this endless order, and I'd be nodding and looking at him, like, with this face that made it look like I was listening and adding up the price in my head. But really, I was just thinking, is there any chance that my 15-minute break will occur before he's done ordering so that I can tap out, get somebody else handling this nightmare situation. So I had a pit in my stomach every day when I would go to work until I finally figured out the secret, and it was this. When someone would come up and order something, I would ballpark their order, and then I would guess low. because nobody complains about being undercharged. <laughs> Never in the history of this country has anyone written in to whom it may concern. So I would, like, if somebody came up and ordered, I thought it was, like, five bucks, I'd, like, take 40% off. This is the petty larceny part. And I'll be damned if I did not become the most popular employee at that particular Dick's Drive-In, not so much with the staff, but with the customers. I would have a line of, like, 20 people. Everybody else would just be sitting at the register dead, like, what's Burbank doing? He's really got something figured out. And I hope that Dix will take this free publicity in trade for all the money that I lost him that summer. But now, when I go to Dix Drive-In, or any other place like that, I just, when I get up to the register, I scan, and I try to figure out who looks the most confused and nervous, and I just beeline it for that person, so... That's just a little pro tip as we're getting our first guest out here. Um, we have been talking about getting back to basics on this show. So let's give you the basics on Jackie Cation. Okay, she's a stand-up comic. She's also self-identified as a dorky American, which explains the name of her podcast, The Dork Forest. It also explains why her stand-up special is titled, This Will Make an Excellent Horcrux. <laughs> she's appeared on Conan, At Midnight, and This American Life. Please welcome Jackie Cation to the show. All right. I am very excited to be here. I, have, I uh, do stand-up comedy. I've been doing stand-up comedy for a long time. Very long time. I, I started stand-up comedy before women were really allowed to do stand-up comedy. It was right before you could do stand-up comedy, but then they would burn you as a witch. <laughs> I opened for Hester Prynne back in the 1600s. She was hilarious. Tight five in the Iroquois. Or the Iroquois, if you're Canadian. Anyway, um, yeah, but I've been doing stand-up a long time. I love stand-up comedy. I don't know if you've seen a lot of stand-up. You know, if you have, you know that comics were just a parade of Asperger's victims fighting a wind of autism. And I am no different. I am the same. I am from Wisconsin. It's in the middle. And uh, sure, a lot of Wisconsinites in Portland looking for the non-sun. I don't know why. Just not cold and dark enough in Wisconsin. Let's go to Portland. Uh, the... Uh, 
But what I, I am the youngest of six. I have four older brothers and an older sister. And before the age of seven, in my family, there was a lot of hitting, a lot of hitting. Our parents hit us, we hit each other. It was the 70s. It was the golden age of hitting. <laughs> it's over now. Don't worry about it. Um, when I turned seven, there was a decision made in my family, no more hitting. We're not going to hit you. You can't hit each other. Sounds great. Uh, they didn't tell us what to do with what was now our bottled rage. <laughs> My brothers were much older. They turned to drugs, alcohol, and the ladies. I was seven. These weren't available. Um, my sister, nine, just turned to the ladies because she's a mover. And uh, what I did was I crawled into a book, and I did some reading. You guys did a little reading, then I did some reading. And then I did some rereading, and then guess what happened? Some more reading. And then I was 13, and that is all that I did. I would walk and read like that kid. I don't know what your eighth grade situation was like, but when I was in eighth grade, girls would fight. Before and after, boys would fight, but for some reason, seventh, eighth grade, girls would beat the heck out of each other, and boys would be like, yay, it's not us, let's go watch. Um, I didn't get into fights because I was, A, reading, and B, I was told there was no hitting. Uh, so, but one day, a smaller girl came up to me in eighth grade and said, hey, the burnout girls are going to beat me up after school. Will you come and stand next to me while it happens? I'm like, why? Why would that be something? And she goes, you don't have to fight. It would just be for moral support because they have a gang. And I was like, well, that's probably what a friend in my book would do. Let's do it. So we go after school. And I'm standing next to this kid, and I'm reading, and I'm waiting for the fight to begin, and I'm reading, and I'm waiting for the fight to begin. And the fight never begins. And you know why the fight never begins? Because spooky reading girl is there, <laughs> creeping everyone out. Yeah. I ruined three fights with this technique. <laughs> Two other girls came up to me and said, would you stand next to me while they beat me up? Because it tends to weird them out. <laughs> yes, yes, I will. Until finally, the burnout girls are like, we've had enough of this nonsense. And they start pushing me around. It's like, we're going to beat you up. And I'm like, why is there hitting? Why is there hitting? I'm reading. What's happening? And... One of the boys who was just watching accidentally pushed me and ripped my sweater. Now, here's the thing. I have one sister. We had three sweaters for both of us for the entirety of junior high. And so I lost my tiny lizard mind. And I jumped on top of this kid, and I started choking him and slamming his head against the ground. And they're pulling on me, and they're like, you're killing him. You're killing him. And I said, yes, yes, I am. Three sweaters. That's all we had. And then I said, and I will kill them unless you people ignore me for the rest of your lives. I said it, I meant it, and it totally worked. All of junior high, all of senior high, the following 15 years, until Facebook was invented, right? Because I do Facebook like a lot of people do Facebook. You want to be my friend? Fine. Confirm, 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 and then I figure out who the heck you are. So, a couple of years ago, on my wall, people started posting on my wall. Remember when you were weird and read all the time? Remember all that weird reading you used to do? Uh, remember, there's no statute of limitations on forever, unfriend, block. Because... Here's the thing, I read almost anything. Fiction, nonfiction, literature, crap. I read it all. And uh, everything but horror. I don't read horror because it is scary. Uh, yeah, congratulations, horror writers. You've already won. Anyway, um, but in junior high, I used to read a lot of nonsense. And I used to read a lot of romance novels. And that's what they're making fun of me of. But here's something I'm willing to tell you. Portland, live wire, radio. I still read an occasional romance novel. A little bit of booing, a little bit of positive. Good for you. Usually, a lot of judgmental silence. So, congratulations. 
Yeah, I am not sustaining a billion dollar industry up here by myself, you guys. And it's, yeah, I, other people get up here, they talk about their love of drugs and porn and interesting, interesting, fascinating. I have told people that I occasionally read some poorly written prose and uh, people lose their minds. So good for you, Portland, because uh, I still occasionally read some, and I don't know, I don't, it's no different than people's crazy porn addiction. I do not watch porn myself because I was born 107 years old. So every time I have tried to watch porn, I end up yelling at the television, you should call your mom. <laughs> Just call her. She would love to hear from you. It's very hard to get off on that. But I'm told, if you watch a lot of porns, that sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're so bad that they pull you out of the movie. The acting, the writing, the lighting, the production values. That's true, too, when you read your softcore porny novels. Sometimes they're so poorly written, they pull you out of the book, off the page. Where you're like, is that even a sentence? What's happening? Uh, Because a lot is always going to be two words. It's always going to be two words. And it's always going to be enormously exhausting when it is not distractingly horrible. The other problem with, uh, with your porns, I'm told, is that you can't unsee things. Uh, you've seen something and now you're like, oh, cr- now I know what that looks like. That is true also when you read your softcore porny novels. You can't unread something. 25 years ago, in a second chance at love Harlequin romance, I read three sentences, one paragraph that is burned into my cerebellum. And they are... Well, sentence number one, welcome home, she gasped as he entered her. (laughs) Recommend you do that. Makes my husband laugh every time. (laughs) Two, their sleeping bag became like a rocket ship. (laughs) And three, they came in synchronous apocalypse. (laughs) Somebody bought a thesaurus. Thanks a lot, you guys. That was Jackie Cation right here on Livewire Radio from uh, Portland, Oregon. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. We're talking about getting back to basics this week. We've got comedian Jackie Cation here. Um, how long have you been doing comedy, Jackie? I count the 80s as one year. Because <laughs> so, you started in... 84... But the club burned down, so I only did stand-up for eight months. The club burned down. I got a 1.8 that semester. Uh, I didn't burn down the club. That's, you'll be happy to know. And, uh, and then, so it was harder to get sets for the rest of the 80s. Uh, but I did graduate from college. Do you think that if you would have been doing more comedy, you would not have graduated from college? I wanted to quit college and just do comedy. When I started doing stand-up, I literally, it, it felt like what I assume heroin feels like, because that is all that I wanted to do. And quite honestly, that is all that I want to do. Almost every day, all the time. I want to do other things, but mostly just, like, my husband's a game designer, and in the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of guy comics who used to do this joke about how... Women are always asking guys what they're thinking about. We're not thinking about anything. Quit asking us what we're thinking about. So when I started dating, and I never dated before, um, because the way I would hit on men is I would stand next to them for years. Uh, (laughs) The worst. (laughs) Anyway, so, but but when I met my husband, I never asked him what he was thinking about because I assumed that I wasn't supposed to. And he's a game designer, and he loves all games, every game, every game forever, and all games. And so one day, three years into our relationship, he said, what are you thinking about me and I said 
comedy. What are you, what are you thinking about? And he goes, games. And it was the last time we had that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> who is, who's a, a dream crowd for you, and who is the last crowd that you want to see when you're about to do a comedy show? Oh, right. Well, you know, it's really... The hardest kind of comedy is to do stand-up outside. Like at the Taste of Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> like there's people wandering past. They're like, oh, she's doing stand-up. And, uh, and then they keep going to find something on a stick to eat. Uh, or I Maybe did if sh- you deep-fried the microphone. <laughs> yeah, right, and start handing them out. And then that would even be a greater nightmare. But, uh, yeah, you know what? There are towns that are, that are kind of slightly overeducated and underemployed that I relate to. <laughs> and uh, this is one of those yeah. towns, you guys. Yeah. No offense. 80% of this crowd kayaked here. <laughs> and it was the one thing they did today. <laughs> well, after building that kayak last weekend. And, uh... Yes, right. <laughs> yeah, up, we, uh, up where I, I live these days, I went and saw with my wife the uh, comedian Tig Notaro this week, yeah. who's great. But we were at uh, having a drink at a bar before we went over, and a couple people sitting at the end of the bar said, like, hey, who are you going to see tonight? And they said, I don't know. I just love comedy. And I thought... Nobody says that about bands. Like, what are you going to see? It could be NWA. It could be Enya. I don't know. I love music. Yeah, it's the worst idea ever, ever. Google. Google the comedian's name, and then you will find out if it's some sort of shouty, shouty, wiggly person, which is often done well, uh, or if it's super dry one-liners. You know, I mean, it could be Stephen Wright, but it could be jumping up and down guy wearing a polo. You don't know. And so YouTube is full of videos under every name ever. What do you do, though, when you walk out on stage and you realize these guys are here for jumpy, wiggly guy? I'm Jackie Cation. Do you try to adjust your act or do you just embrace the suck? I did a weird weird show in northern Wisconsin about a month and a half ago at an Indian casino. Things, careers on fire, you guys. Uh, (laughs) Outside of Ashland, uh, Wisconsin, up by Lake Superior. And uh, there's an Indian casino. And if you know anything about Indian casinos, the first year, about all casinos, I would say, the first year of any casino, uh, Quonset Hut, Garage. The next year, a Best Western. Uh, the third year, it's the Bellagio because uh, nobody wins. Nobody wins. Uh, right. The house wins, and so they get to keep building up spires into the sky like uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon. But uh, this particular... Like, that's uh, a joke that probably didn't go over great at the casino. No, no. They were unmoved at my Kwanzaa Not fans humor. of the, any of the wonders of the world. <laughs> Are the Hanging yeah. Gardens of Babylon a wonder? They I, were a wonder. I don't believe that they currently exist. The naked pictures of Justin Bieber that emerged this week knocked him off the list. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you think about that tiny boy, child, man. I'm, I'm not ever... I'm... He's like 20... Right? Forever 21. Forever 21. The store, <laughs> store is named after him. He's not capable of aging. He has a Benjamin <laughs> staying right here button disease. He never ages past 21. Yeah, I totally interrupted you. What was happening at the casino when you walked out on stage? Well, it was a, it was a bit... They were, they were confused. I don't know that they were entirely aware of what kind of comedy they were going to see. So they were like, there's always... The more rural you go, the deeper you go into Arkansas or Nebraska or Alabama. If you go into Birmingham, Alabama, you're fine. You go outside of that, they're like, is that a woman? 
<laughs> Who said she could talk? And, uh, and you're like, well, it'll be fine. And, uh, but, but there, I mean, there, I don't have that many hell gigs. Let us knock on particle board. Yeah. And, uh, That's a fine Jarvis desk from uh, Ergo Depot. How dare you? <laughs> it is, uh, I think it's metal. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So I, I haven't had a, I haven't had a hard gig in a while. Yeah. So. Let's talk about your fans, many of whom are here, known as Rangers. Rangers, Rangers of the Dork Forest. You get a plus one to your initiative roll. <laughs> I've just blessed you with it. Yeah. Ting. Um, why, why are they called Rangers? Well, because uh, uh, it actually was, it's all, all they're fan generated. Everything is fan generated when you have a podcast. Because, um, like, I got in on the ground floor of podcasting, Luke. I don't know if you know. Uh, it's not like the ground floor of plastics from It's no. a Wonderful Life. Uh, it you is... get a free podcast when you sign up for Hotmail. <laughs> right. It's not, not a tall, hard bar to get over. No, no, free podcast. Yeah. And uh, so, but there's, they called themselves Rangers because it, it's a gaming, it's in, in Dungeons and Dragons and in, in different sort of sword and sorcery kind of things. The Ranger is a, uh, they're in a forest. Usually they have woodland skills. Uh, sure. <laughs> That's what I assume is what it all, and, but sometimes they call me like queen of the dork forest. And I'm like, no, I want to be the first Ranger among equal Rangers. I'm not much into monarchies, you guys. You're like the... That seems like an odd thing to say You're like loud. the George Washington of the Dork Forest. You're like, please, I don't want to be in charge of you. I want to be one Just of the Just two terms and then the farewell yeah. address. That's what I'm like, man. Get out. Do you feel like um, this whole, oh, I was such a geek growing up. I was so dorky. Has that been co-opted by a lot of people who did not really have that experience because it's now very in style? They call them programmers. Uh, yeah, they're programmers, but they're broy dudes. So, um, because they're sort of like, but I'll tell you this: is that there's plenty of room in the locker that I was shoved into in eighth grade. So come on in, guys, but try to be nice. Um, Jackie Cation, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this week's show is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing. Certified as a mission-based B Corp since 2013, meeting requirements in the categories of social and environmental performance, accountability, and transparency. Also, Jackie Cation, they make beer. I was going to say, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> the beer is They're a big a part of people. what makes the world a much better place. More information at newbelgium.com. Hey, if you're planning to be here in the Portland area, don't miss our October 24th show. We've got actor and uh, former Daily Show correspondent Asif Manvi. Also, we've got comedy from Portland's own Bree Pruitt, music from Christopher Paul Stelling and the band Joseph, plus a guy named Rinker Buck who retraced the Oregon Trail in a covered wagon. This was like a couple years ago he did this. Wow. Would you ever do something like that? No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've, I've often thought about going back in time and dying of uh, exposure because uh, I wouldn't know how to camp or anything. Yeah, this guy really uh, took his life in his hand, but he's, uh, he's got a cool new book about it. His name's Rinker Buck, and he'll be here as well. Uh, if you want more information about that show, you can head over to livewireradio.org. Please ask him if he's ever played Oregon Trail. <laughs> That's question number one. Thank you. Hey, if there's a Van Dyke Parks of food in America, it might be our next guest. Ruth Reichel has been an essential part of the American food scene. From her days as a chef in Berkeley in the 70s to writing restaurant reviews for the New York Times, often in disguise, more on that in a minute, she was also the editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine, which was a pretty sweet gig until they shut the magazine down. 
which left Ruth trying to figure out what to do with her life. Well, she headed back to basics, back to the kitchen, the result of which is her new book, My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. Please welcome Ruth Reichel to Livewire. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Portland. How's it going? It's great. It's yeah. great. I love Portland. I love being here. How was the food in the green room? Um, I um, feel like we really needed to bring our A game to this uh, show, and I don't know if we did. It was, it was actually very good. Tiny uh, carrots? Tiny uh, carrots? Uh, uh, tiny carrots, uh, red peppers, yeah. uh, guacamole, sure. uh, sandwiches. Um, pretty impressive, actually, compared <laughs> nice to what work. I'm used to. Was it better than the snack spread they have at Fresh Air? Uh, <laughs> uh, I hate to tell you this, but no snack spread at Fresh Air. So, dun, dun, dun. You know, this is really... Sorry, guys. Last pledge drive didn't go great. <laughs> Had to cancel the snack spread. Um, okay, take us back to 2009. Uh, you're actually, as I read in the book, you're in Seattle talking to a reporter, and you get a phone call, right? Right. What and, happened next? Um, it's my boss, and he says... You have to come back to New York. And I go, uh, you want to give me a hint? And he says, no, just come back. And I said, well, no, actually, I'm, I was supposed to come to Portland the next day. I was on tour for the Gourmet Cookbook. And he says, forget Portland, come back to New York. Gasp. Um, gasp, yes. <laughs> now uh, they're happy that Gourmet Magazine folded. <laughs> and they heard that, that kind guy. of news. Um, so I fly back to New York, and I, of course, am convinced that I am about to be fired. Uh, but no, I am standing in the conference room with my entire staff when we are told that the magazine is toast. It's over. And the December issue was already at the printer, and I said, well, you know, you're going to do that. And he said, no, the magazine is over. And we all just stood there stunned. It was a 69-year-old institution, beloved across America. And um, I don't we... understand why he could not have done that over the phone. <laughs> you could have stayed on tour. <laughs> yeah, and they sent me back out right. on tour. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. Um, anyway, um, yes. I mean, it was like about, you know, we were all going to be together when we got oh, the right. bad news. <laughs> yeah. all right. And we did what any sensible group of people would do. We all went into James, our wine editor's office, and James said, we're not leaving a single bottle here. Yes. <laughs> and there was a lot of wine, and we just started drinking. And at the, you know, it's 5 o'clock. We're now a little drunk, um, and we don't want to leave each other. Uh, you know, we all kind of thought we may never all be together again. And I said, everybody come to my house. And we went back to my house and had a pretty good wake. Wow. It lasted all night. Wow. So the next day, you guys were unemployed and hungover. Exactly. Exactly. And they all still live with you? Uh, yes, they, <laughs> oh, not God, one has left. Not yeah. one has left. They're all still there. You know? And that's why I had to start cooking all the time. <laughs> um, this book, My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life, I will admit when I heard about the book and when I started to look at it, my first thought was like, you know, you're a James Beard winner. 
you had a public TV show where you got to hang out. I mean, you call Francis McDormand Fran. Like, that's how cool you are. I thought, Ruth Reichel's going to be okay. Why was this so devastating for you to lose this one particular job? Uh, well, for a lot of reasons. One, um, magazine lasted for almost 70 years. It closed on my watch. And I really felt like 65 people lost their jobs. And I really felt like... I should have seen it coming. I should have done something. I mean, I should have somehow prevented it. So I felt really like a failure, you know, like I had let everyone down. On top of that, you know, I was 62 years old. I'd been working my whole life. And I'd always been Ruth Reichel, comma, restaurant critic, editor, restaurant owner, something. And suddenly I was Ruth Reichel, nothing. And I thought... Who's going to hire me? Um, I'm, it's over. Um, my husband and I were used to having two salaries, and um, it doesn't take very long to get to the place in your head where you're homeless. And I was there. <laughs> in your head. In yeah. my head. But even yeah. so, I have to say that, you know, uh, it's surprising for me to hear that you were feeling that kind of economic pressure because I just um, assumed that, you know... You You assumed that I was not an idiot about money? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, once I heard about the wine party, I started to get a suspicion (laughs) about some questionable decision-making. But um, did you realize that you were starting to create the stuff of a book when you were just kind of immersing yourself in, in, in kitchen life? No, I absolutely did not. I just did the thing that I do when I'm terrified and lonely is I went into the kitchen. I mean, it was just the natural thing to do. Um, The first day alone in the apartment, my son was in college, my husband who is a news guy and he was off on assignment. I'm all alone. I wake up and it's like, oh, what am I going to do with myself? And I went out shopping and came home and started cooking. And I rediscovered um, what was important in life. I mean, it was, I mean, I don't know what I would have done if I couldn't have cooked. Um, I, in, I, you know, what I feel like is, what did you make? Yeah. Um, I made mapo dofu. Um, you know, really spicy, something that was, and then... Yeah, what is that, by the yeah. way? <laughs> It's uh, Chinese tofu, very spicy with oh, pork. Cool. It's great. Uh, and I would have gone with Eggos. Uh, <laughs> That's me. And then you, you would still be, like, waiting to save your life. And then I did. Um, I thought, I really don't want to wa- wallow here. So I'm going to invite a bunch of friends over, and I am going to make the world's biggest chocolate cake uh, for two reasons. <laughs> One, because when you make something that big... You really have to pay attention. Okay. And two, when you've got all that chocolate, I mean, it's a, ch- a chocolate cake for 25 people, and all that chocolate wafting through your house, really hard to be sad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Better than Eggos. We have Ruth Reichel here. Her new book is My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. We've also got our friend Jackie Cation um, hanging out as well. Um, I- I'm wondering, Ruth, as I... As I look through this book and these recipes that you started making after Gourmet Magazine had folded while you were editor-in-chief and you were just kind of going back to basics, which is what we're talking about this week on the show, I had an overwhelming sense of just wanting to be your friend 
so uh, I could come over to your house you and eat on. some of the food. Do you have an opening <laughs> for friend of Ruth Reichel? Because your friends have a sweet deal. They do, and you know, I mean, my my door is always open, and people wander in, and I say, you know, what would you like to eat? <laughs> uh, I mean, I really love to cook. But do you feel a sense of pressure? Because I'm looking through this book, and there seems to be a lot of intentionality behind the different recipes that you make. You were talking about making a huge chocolate cake uh, for all your friends. It's like when people come over to your house, they're not just coming over and like, hey, maybe we'll eat something. Like, we're going to friggin' Ruth Reichel's house now. Is that a massive amount of pressure for you? I just want a basic um, No. Level? I mean, the biggest pressure is I kind of want to make you something you want to eat. So it's like, what can I make that's going to make you happy is the pressure. Now, you know, look, what part of what this book is about for me is I don't think cooking should be a test. I don't think it should be a performative act. I think, you know, if you make a bad meal, there's another one in three hours, you know? I mean, um, everybody makes a bad meal sometime, and, and God knows I do, and I don't think it's tragic. Um... I'd heard, I think it was when you were on Fresh Air, that show that doesn't have snacks, um, (laughs) that when you were uh, the restaurant critic for the New York Times, you had to go in disguise at times because people started to recognize you? Yeah, I mean, I really believed as a restaurant critic that I should tell my readers what was going to happen to them, not what happened to the critic who gets the red carpet rolled out. And so I had... Many wonderful disguises. What was your favorite? <laughs> well, um, my favorite was Chloe. <laughs> Chloe was a blonde. Oh, a blonde. And, yeah, she was a blonde. And I always wanted to know, do blondes have more fun? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. And Chloe, unlike me, wore a lot of makeup. She had very long red nails. I have no nails. Um, it, so it was, a, it was quite something to become Chloe. But having done that, I really rocked her. So um, <laughs> Chloe would go to a fancy restaurant and sit in the bar and, you know, make friends with some guy. My husband wasn't real fond of this. But, yeah. Um, I tried to give my wife this cover story about a guy named Gerard I'm cultivating. <laughs> Not working. <laughs> But, you know, there is no better disguise than having dinner with someone who really doesn't know that you're not the person you're pretending to be. I guarantee you nobody ever made me as Chloe. Wow. Um, then I also had Betty. <laughs> Betty, was, um, Betty was a woman who I once... This, this very sad older woman who got on a bus carrying two shopping bags, and I got up to give her my seat. And she said, oh, dearie, nobody ever stands up for me. I feel invisible. And I thought, invisible, that's what I want to be. Wow. And so I followed her. I got off the bus when she did. And I followed her, and I saw she really was invisible. So I made myself into Betty. And when I went out as Betty, my friends were instructed to call me Aunt Betty. And um, she was a very good disguise. Wow. what do you think uh, is one thing that somebody who's not a food person, somebody who didn't grow up working in restaurants or working around food or 
you know, just maybe even in a family that didn't cook a lot, what's one thing somebody can do to sort of improve their food experience at home? Is it better ingredients? Is it just keep adding wine to the risotto <laughs> till they black out? Like um, what? That's been my policy so far. You know, I, I think the, the first thing is don't try and be a chef. You know, we go to restaurants to get chef food. Cook simple food. I mean, this almost everything in this book is pretty simple. I mean, it's home cooking. I'm not a chef. Um, I'm just a home cook who loves to cook. I mean, my knife skills, chefs laugh at me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that if you don't aspire to do complicated food, um, it's easy. You know, I mean, one of the dishes in this book is a grilled cheese sandwich. It happens to be the best grilled cheese sandwich in the world. What uh, makes it the best grilled cheese sandwich in the world? Well, first of all, it, you use good bread, you use good cheese, you grate the cheese, and then you chop up a bunch of onions and shallots and um, scallions and some garlic, and you put that in there. But the real secret is that you put a layer of cheese on the outside, so you get this, like, a frico. It's, like, very crisp on the outside. It's this beautiful, shaggy crust. This is how Jackie was raised in Wisconsin. And this they is, just wrap, they this wrap is the, the greatest babies in idea cheese. in the world, because it, it creates sort of like a Monte Cristo, but, like, a much thinner layer of cheese that... That sounds like crazy. Wow. I'll be buying this book yeah. tomorrow morning. Yes. <laughs> it's called My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. Ruth Reichel, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, Ruth. Uh, it's very clear that you know food very uh -uh. well, but we want to put that to the ultimate test with a game that we've created called Name That Dish. <laughs> we really got to rehearse these theme songs. <laughs> All right, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to give you a list of ingredients, and we would like you to tell us what those ingredients make up, what the end result of that is, okay? Okay, uh, this is where I make a fool of myself. <laughs> Verbal chopped? Yeah, that's okay. right. <laughs> All right, so here we go. First off, cornmeal, all-purpose flour, white sugar, baking powder, salt, one egg beaten. No help from the audience there, Paul Prudhomme. Canola oil and milk. Cornbread. Absolutely right, cornbread. <laughs> that one was really hard. <laughs> I know these are going to get harder, right? You know, I know you're going to trick me here somewhere. That's... A all the rumors you've heard about this show are absolutely right, Ruth. This is going to get harder. <laughs> Here's the next one. This is, this is doable. Uh, chunk bacon, olive oil, lean stew beef, sliced onion, salt and pepper, flour, young and full-bodied red wine, beef stock, tomato paste. Both bourguignon. Yep, that's exactly right. <laughs> I'm glad you said it and not me because I tried to practice saying that backstage 20 times. Can we hear it? <laughs> How did you say? Bouf? Bourguignon? Bourguignon. Yes, that. Again, Ruth Reichel. Woo! Here we go. Uh, next up, it's going to get a little bit harder. Lactic acid, starter culture, olorescin of paprika, sodium nitrate, BHA, BHT, citric acid to protect flavor, calcium sulfate, 
<laughs> answer any time when you know what it is. Salt, L-cysteine hydrochloride, uh, tricalcium phosphate, enzymes, modified uh, food starch, okay, soy, so- lecithin, uh, sodium, we're halfway through, sodium, <laughs> sterile, lacylate, methyl cellulose, maltodextrin, modified cornstarch, natural flavors, thank God, uh, datum, uh, all caps, uh, and of course you got your medium chain triglycerides. Um, Doritos, Fritos, uh, toothpaste? <laughs> both great guesses, both wrong. It's a pepperoni hot pocket. Whoa. Um, all pocket, no pepperoni. Yeah. <laughs> Ruth Reichel, thank you so much. That's Ruth Reichel. The new book is My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. This here is Live Wire Radio. We're brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines with 80 nonstops from Seattle. And this fall, adding New York's Kennedy Airport. Now the city that never sleeps is just a fairly long nap away. Alaska (laughs) Airlines keeping you connected nonstop. More information at alaskaair.com. Jackie Cation, thank you for hanging out with us. Thank you for having me. This was exciting. It was really fun. Um, we knew that cheese was going to probably come up with Ruth Reichel, so we needed a representative <laughs> of the Badger State. Exactly. You Go were the, the only Wisconsinite who was already on the show, so hold on a quick second. This is Live Wire Radio. We're coming to you from PRI here in Portland, Oregon, and we will be right back after this short break. Hey, it's Luke, and... Look, you may have forgotten your New Year's resolution by now, but our sponsor, Ergo Depot, has a new one for you, and it is the easiest one ever. Sit less. How's that for an achievable goal? It's not like run a marathon or bench 250. In fact, there's no benching of any kind. You just need to move a little more. And maybe think about getting a swanky new desk like the Jarvis, which morphs itself into a standing desk with just the touch of a button. Visit ErgoDepot.com and they'll set you up for goal-setting success. Now we do need to talk about your personality. All right, welcome back to Livewire Radio, coming to you from Revolution Hall here in Portland, Oregon. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. Our next guest is an American legend. He collaborated with Brian Wilson on Smile, one of the more ambitious and also drawn-out musical projects in pop history. He's also worked with U2, Harry Nilsson, and Grizzly Bear, just to name a few, all while putting out a bunch of his own amazing studio albums. He even did the arrangement for the Bear Necessities from The Jungle Book. Please welcome the amazing Van Dyke Parks to Livewire. Well, hello there. You wore your best overalls for this show. Yeah, I'm in the overall uberalis because I'm trying to create the impression that I've done an honest day's labor. (laughs) But the thing is, and the radio audience can't see this, under your overalls, you have a very nice collared shirt and tie on, so you're sending a little bit of a mixed message. Van Dyke, you have helped build the fame and fortune of many, many musicians, but you yourself have not accrued said fame and fortune. You know, I've said I worked very hard for anonymity and I achieved it. <laughs> but my mother once said to me that she and her husband was so um, 
impressed. Uh, they marveled that I had put my retirement before my career. <laughs> You'll fit right in in Portland. <laughs> Let's talk about your childhood a little bit. You are an incredibly precocious musical kid, right? Why do you put it in the past tense? You my childhood is with, with me notion. today. I mean, everything I, the best I know is... Robert Schumann's scenes from childhood. To me, it's all about repeating. Wow. What was the first song that you remember learning as a kid on piano? I think uh, maybe Moonlight in Vermont because it was very sophisticated, you know? Can but you... of course, all the hymns, low church, high church, all the hymns. It was not a matter of secular or, you know, you know institutional religion. It was all about... It, uh, going to church has never really meant about dogma. It's all been about music and it's and celebrating life through the highest mathematics available to the mind of man. That's what I think. That's really. <laughs> well, you yeah. you grew up in Louisiana, as I understand it, but well, then you you went off to New Jersey and and got involved in some pretty highfalutin. Choir music? Yeah, we all, we all were very obedient. We sang all the music. Uh, we went to New York. We did the uh, raids on New York with people like Toscanini and, you know, big, the biggest conductors of the time. And, and we sang, had to know every note at Carnegie Hall of Music. You, would, you couldn't rent the joint in those days. So it was a big deal. I went through, I had every opportunity. Got my Social Security card in 1952 at the Metropolitan Opera. Wow. Every kind of music, I'm like a goat. I love all kinds of music. <laughs> Did you really uh, go with your choir caroling outside of Albert Einstein's house? Well, not only that, uh, last year I went to visit my 96-year-old first piano teacher. I went to apologize to him. He was in an old folks' home. He said, uh, I said, do you remember that we were, we were in Einstein's house, weren't we? He said, oh, yes, my boy. We went into the kitchen. We spent another hour in Noel with uh, him playing the fiddle. Einstein is playing the fiddle while you're singing. What it means is that I've spent my youth in a very good way as a musician, saturated with music every morning from the first sung prayer at breakfast after fixing the coals of the fire with Mammy Dozier. And the day would be in music and all of the, the shared history, the mathematics and so forth. But everything was music. All my life has been music. We're talking to Van Dyke Parks here on Livewire Radio. Um, how did you then end up out in California working on, like, for instance, The Jungle Book for Disney? 1963 was a great a year uh, for uh, assassination of John Kennedy and a social transmigration, uh, general change of the mindset. My brother was in a Cold War in Germany. He was the vice consul to Frankfurt, Germany. And uh, he died. And it was really an insult. He was only 23. And uh, so my brother and I needed, my brother and I were playing coffee houses in Los Angeles. And we needed the money to buy a black suit and an airplane ticket so that we could bury our brother. And a man of great compassion 
Terry Gilkison, an author of The Bare Necessities, saw us in our difficulty and gave me a job. Wow. That's the way that happened. You can't make this stuff up. And there's a great man, Terry Gilkison. So then how did you uh, end up meeting Brian Wilson? Well, then my brother and I were playing the coffee houses. We went from Hermosa Beach all the way up to San Francisco. <laughs> and we learned a lot of Mexican boleros and suapangos and stuff like that. You know what I'm serious? We'd play all this stuff in the coffee house. Nobody was scared. It was eclectic. They did. No people did. There's no condemnation for being eclectic. The arts collided. Well, I was so lucky to be across the street from uh, Astrid Gilberto. The first night she played in the United States, I went in the kitchen to chase Astrid Gilberto into the kitchen. I did. And I would, she was behind a curtain and sobbing because she was so nervous she had just played her first job in the United States. And I all of a sudden realized, I don't speak Portuguese, eh? And uh, she's 24 and I'm only 19. This is a little over my head. So I left the kitchen. I never did meet her. And that's when you ran into Brian Wilson? <laughs> the Beach Boys. I were across the street. Girls were screaming in some kind of, like, paroxysm of ecstasy that to this... We've got, we need to get to the song, but I really do, I know that uh, you, you may be tired of talking about it, certainly brought up a lot when you're interviewed, yeah. but I'm just curious, there was so much uh, speculation around the Smile album, and then it was delayed for such a long time, and there was so much back and forthing between various factions of the Beach Boys and people in Brian Wilson's life. How did you feel about that album when it finally came out? Because you were such a huge contributor to it. Well, I thought it was very good. I thought it would, uh, if it had been a direct bank wire transfer before the college tuitional curve, it would have been more welcome. But it was delayed. I noted that. So you would have made a lot more money if that thing came out when you made that it. That is so cool that you know that. <laughs> well, what song are we going to hear, Van Dyke? I'm going to play Orange Crate Art. Yes, thank you so much. All right, much. Van Dyke Parks here on Livewire. <laughs> Thank you. 
finished grade. Art was a place to start. Orange grade art was a world apart. Home for two in view of Sonoma. Back when Ramona had a heart. Memories of her orange grade art. rocking chair barnyard gate waiting some repair trust in fate and sweet inspiration you could go bust to replace look at this just what is here by the case hear the lonesome locomotion Where grapes of wrath are stored Stops on a brassero's prayer From the fine of a vintage crew Comes the wine of this rendezvous Ladies and gentlemen, right here on Livewire, backed by our own Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg. And that's our show. I like radio shows. All right. Oh, good. We have some fans. Actually, they're here for the wedding that was upstairs. Okay. The show's over. Those are some of the most fun conversations. The one where you don't know exactly where it's going. But um, uh, we hope you guys enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed being part of, uh, of recording this show here at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Uh, big thanks to all of our guests, Jackie Cation, of course, uh, the wonderful Ruth Reichel, and the inimitable Van Dyke Parks. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations, 
generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is also our producer and editor. Our house band is Dave Jorgensen, Jonathan Newsom, and Ned Failing. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone and Sean McGrath. Oh, by the way, Ben Landsverk helped uh, Jim sit in with Van Dyke Parks, too. We can't leave him out. Molly Pettit is our incredible technical director. Our house sound is done by Mr. D. Neil Blake and our lighting by Greg Cardi. Photography by Jenny Baker. Thanks so much to our marketing director, Laura Haddon, our development director, Kim Bergstrom, and our operations manager, Lauren Masterson. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, and listeners like you find fine people. For more information on the show or how you can become a member of LiveWire, visit LiveWireRadio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. All right, uh, I gotta go. Van Dyke Parks gave me his business card. I think we're going out for a drink, so hopefully we'll see you next week. Fingers crossed. I'm Luke Burbank, and uh, we'll see you then. PRI Public Radio International.